How hard is it to get a movie funded? We'll talk about that and more on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make it the show? Start the clock! And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napple. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Got a lot of great response from last night's program with the real Jimmy Roberts uh, about the truth about Mars. Uh, just one thing I want to say about that, because we I got a ton of email. The response was incredible from that program last night. But here's the thing. You know, we cover a lot of subjects here, uh, you know, a wide variety of subjects. And I try to uh, emphasis this idea, emphasize this idea of um, keeping an open mind, being a skeptic, not a cynic. And that message comes across uh, to some people who are more inclined to uh, not have any skepticism at all as an endorsement or uh, saying, I, I want to be part of <laughs> your world your your belief system whatever it is so i'm getting a ton of emails from people that want me to be part of this whole mars uh ancient civilization community that i was not even aware that so many people believe there was once life on mars that got annihilated in uh whatever whether it was a uh extraterrestrial uh war of the planets or whatever it was they believe but uh i don't want to be part of any extra community i got a full life i have uh i'm doing two podcasts a day sometimes three sometimes four <laughs> and i have a, a music career <laughs> and i don't have time to go uh chasing down the truth we will have jimmy back and i thought it was a fascinating conversation again i am a skeptic i question things i don't uh, i'm not a cynic i'm not going to shut my mind to any of it but i really don't want to uh join your community so you can stop those emails inviting me to go wherever it is and follow whatever beliefs you have i'm fine with you having them i'm open to hearing about them from the people who are uh authority or know more enough know enough about it to present it on this program i'm fine with that but really i have a full life please no more invites to uh the mars uh civilization community i got enough to do right here on earth uh we got a great show for you today my guest today is a an accomplished actor and he's uh known for a lot of things including singing and uh he's also a uh, accomplished filmmaker and uh screenwriter and is known for a lot of work doing stand-ins for some of uh, the most uh, recognizable names in film. Uh, so we'll get to him in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about my sponsors, as always. Um, MyBookie.com is one of the most popular and trusted uh, names in the online gambling community. Its sportsbook offers an incredible variety of sports from American staples such as football and basketball to international sports such as KBO, rugby, and cricket. It even offers wagers on entertainment and politics. You could have you could have bet on the election, although you still wouldn't know whether you won or lost, I guess. And uh, simulated sports uh, video games such as Madden Twenty One and, um, and NBA K uh, NBA Two K Twenty One. Pardon me, I'm not I'm not up on these uh, sports games. Uh, 
If you're uh, looking for a line on your favorite TV show, you can most certainly find it at MyBookie.com. MyBookie's casino options are as plentiful as its sports books. There are 27 different table games such as blackjack and roulette and almost 300 unique slot options, 77 of which are 3D. You can even play live table games and video poker. To get started with them, it's really easy. You just go to MyBookie.com and put in the promo code uh, MINDDOG for your special match deposit offer for your first uh, gaming deposit. So uh, that's a special offer. Depending on what you put in, they'll match it uh, for uh, the first deposit using the promo code MINDDOG, uh, mybookie.com. I do appreciate you patronizing them. And FunWise Capital, if you've followed this program, you're, you're certainly familiar with FunWise Capital, a lender matching platform that gets you the best lines of credit guaranteed you can apply online in 60 seconds and there's no effect to your credit score to see how much you can get use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business this is an important point here uh if you don't have a business but you got a solid business plan that can help you get funding for it uh so and what better time to take advantage of an opportunity like this to start your own business a lot of people are still out of work or uh laid off and on unemployment this is a great time to start your own business you can probably even get help from new york state if you're in new york state like i am <laughs> with a self uh self-employment assistance program that can help you out with that and i'm sure other states have something similar to that so this is a good time to take advantage of that get the best funding you can qualify for this strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation they have hundreds of five-star reviews on google Trustpilot, and facebook and an a-plus rating with the better business bureau they provide unsecured lines of credit at zero percent interest for nine to 15 months unsecured term loans loans based on your income short-term gap funding and bridge loans they work with real estate startups as i mentioned franchises restaurants any kind of business any kind of project and to get started with them it's really really simple you just go to apply.funwise.com slash mind dog that's apply.funwise.com slash mind dog all the links will be in the description for the video as and the podcast uh, as usual so i appreciate you patronizing all my sponsors um mark Barron is an actor filmmaker and a stand-in who's been named the lon cheney of stand-ins now i know some of my younger listeners probably don't know who the hell Lon Chaney is. Lon Chaney is um, a guy from the silent era and then uh, horror film era of the 30s and 40s and was known to have been in uh, many, 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 many films. Uh, so he's having stood in for the uh, likes of Matt. Matthew Broderick and Sean Penn. Uh, I think uh, Michael Imperiali as well. However, he is also an actor, filmmaker, and producer with his own production company, Oraloro Entertainment. I hope I got that one right. Uh, he's currently seeking investors for his movie Mega Balls, which has an award-winning script that, that he has uh, produced himself. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Mark Barrett to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Mark, welcome. Yay! Where's the applause track? <laughs> <laughs> so, so does Fundrise do movies? Because we can, we'll, we'll reach out to him. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, the, the Mars stuff was was really interesting last night. Uh, he basically was showing me uh, evidence that he has all these photos, high definition photos taken from the rover, and showing me photos that are allegedly of uh, ruins that were uh, destroyed in a, I guess, nuclear war seventy thousand years ago on Mars. 
and uh, the response has been overwhelming. Uh, n- now people want me to kind of join every Mars uh, group <laughs> that exists on the internet. Like, like I have time for that. <laughs> so, um, the Lon Chaney of stand-ins. Let's start there. Uh, stand-in work is is, is uh, a a whole different ball game for an actor. Yes, it, it uh, you know it, it is because you're you're really a hybrid between an actor and a crew member. Um, I got into it years ago. I started a musical theater. I uh, was married to someone who didn't like the idea of traveling, so I looked into what I could do in town. This was before I was in the union. <clears throat> Did some extra work and noticed that there was this guy up by the camera who everybody was fussing over, but he wasn't the star. And that's when I learned about what a stand-in did. And I said, well, I'd rather be up there at camera working with all these people, learning things, and sitting and holding, worrying about the donuts. That's how I started doing stand-in work. It is work. A good stand-in doesn't just wait around. You you can be very involved in production. And uh, I've had some great times and learned a lot about movie making from that. Um, what is the basic role? So, yeah, uh, I know you basically are. They, it's all like a back shot, or is it a front shot? And is your role to really um, give the the star of the movie some time off while you sit there and do the dirty work of listening to the other actor no. the lines to you? <laughs> no, it, it it varies project to project. The basic point of a stand-in is on a film set, the actors will rehearse their scene while the director, cinematographer, and key people watch. Once the director is happy with the rehearsal, the actor will then go through hair, makeup, and wardrobe while the rest of the crew gets busy setting up the lights, setting up the camera, choosing lenses, rehearsing camera moves, uh, rehearsing the extras, and they didn't actor there. So they have what we call the second team or the stand-in, and you're hired because you're about the same height, weight, and hair color of the actor. Sometimes they may even dye your hair. And then you do everything that the actor did during rehearsal until everything is set, the lights, the camera. Then the director will call the actors back in and they'll shoot the sequence. And this way there's never downtime on the set. While you're on set working, the actors sometimes might be relaxing, but they may be doing um, press releases. And they're also going through hair and makeup. So everybody's busy. Uh, I've had some directors like Woody Allen who did it differently. Woody would use me to walk around and figure out all of the blocking and everything. Then he'd have the DP set up all the lights. And then when they were ready, they would bring Sean Penn in and they'd tell him exactly what was all worked out. And then he'd do it. Wow. So so each is different. And then there are times where you are off camera where another actor might be getting a close up and doing lines to you, or you might be the guy who's in the car driving at a distance but that's really considered photo double. Uh, and, and what's great about doing that work is you're working directly with, with the directors, with the cinematographers, with the high-end crew people, and you learn a lot. Uh, I still refer to one project I did called Family Business as my master class in film. I was standing in for Matthew Broderick, who was and is a sweetheart. Uh, we had a lot of fun together. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, one of the stars, was giving me acting tips throughout the shot. Wow. I was talking to Sean Connery about musical theater because <laughs> he had a really good voice. And then Sidney Olmet kept explaining why he was doing these shots. And then I found out after the fact 
Sidney Lumet wrote a book called Making Movies. And I read that book. That's a great book, by the way. And I was his sounding board while he was working. I mean, so I really got uh, uh, an experience that you just don't get in a school. Wow. Did Sean Connery sing? I mean, this is a tangent there. What what happened was, and this kind of ties into the Lon Chaney joke, too, because Lon Chaney was the actor of A Thousand Faces. Um, On the set of Family Business, Matthew Broderick was having fun trying to imitate uh, Sean Connery, imitate Dustin Hoffman, imitate uh, Sidney Lumet. And so I started joking around imitating Matthew Broderick. And um, at one point, we were in a small set, and Sean was pacing behind me, humming. And he actually has a really nice baritone voice, or had. And I couldn't help myself. It was about three weeks into filming, and I turned around and said, you know, Sean, oh, do you ever think of doing a musical? (laughs) (laughs) And he looked at me for a moment. He smiled. He said, we'll talk. And later on, we sat down for about a half hour. He was actually going to be the original Daddy Warbucks on Broadway. Wow. Uh, and it didn't work out. So, And, uh, and who was that? Uh, the, the Irish guy um, actually, who actually got that part. I forget uh, what his name is, but I could see his face in my... Uh, I, I keep another thinking. great actor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But... So that uh, I don't want to, you know, belabor the point here, but that's that film, uh, uh, Family Business, that was shot here on Long Island, I believe, right? It was shot in the, all over in New York area, New York, Long Island. We shot out at Syosset in um, I forgot the Quad, I think it's called. Right, right, right it's right off the LIE, and every yeah. time I pass that, and I am reminded of that movie. It was fun. We were doing we were doing an all night shoot, long tracking shot that was supposed to follow Matthew Broderick running as they escaped, if you remember the story. And after we did a bunch of rehearsals, Sydney comes over and says, I hear you're imitating Matthew. And I was a little embarrassed. I said, yeah, we're all having fun. Matthew was cool with that. And Sydney said, do you think you could imitate Matthew running? And I said, yeah, we could have fun. So he said, all right, let's do it. So I did it slow. And then Sydney go faster, faster. And after about the fourth take, he yells, check the gate, which means he filmed me as Matthew running. Wow. And then we got applause, and Matthew was in hysterics. And then he and I are chatting. We're wearing the same wardrobe, and some woman comes up behind us. Now, this is like 2 o'clock in the morning with a crowd watching us in Syosset. This woman comes up behind us, and she says, can I have your picture? And I look to Matthew and say, all right, you know, go do your thing, and I walk away. And she goes, no, you. <laughs> she wanted my picture, not Matthew's. Did she, did she know you weren't him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I did that on the same thing I did four months on the film with uh, Sean Connor, uh, Sean, Con- Sean Penn, a Woody Allen film, where I was often in the same wardrobe, wore the fake mustache, and I was imitating Sean doing his character in the show. And one night, the, I came out of wardrobe, and Sean had left, and as I approached in the dark, the first AD thought I was Sean Penn. Wow. <laughs> and then later, somebody, the, the uh, local police that was watching the set, the daughter, the captain comes over and she starts chatting with me, thinking she's talking to Sean Penn. Because when I started doing extra work to have fun and make it interesting for myself, I started imitating the walk, the cadence, the speech as best as I can of the actors. And it was Hugh Grant who once kid around calling me the Sean, uh, the Lon Chaney, because on the film, uh, um, oh God, what was the film? Uh, um, Mickey Blue Eyes. I was I was doubling and standing in for five different actors. Wow! Uh, so uh, you was most of your career here in New York? Yes, um, I'm born and raised here on Long Island, uh, out in Almont, 
uh, moved here into the city about 24 years ago because I just got tired of commuting. Wow. So uh, if somebody is listening, and I know we have lots of young actors out there, and uh, somebody might say, well, that sounds like a great career. I'd love to get into that. Do you have any uh, advice on how to get into uh, the the stand-in role? First of all, on on most films, the stand-in is a union actor, unless you're dealing with ultra, ultra low budget, and many of them don't have the money for a stand-in. Right. But if you are doing your mailings and your contacts to, to the various casting agencies, it is usually the offices that cast the background, that cast the stand-ins. Right. You have to let them know you are interested. A lot of people don't like stand-in work because it takes a little bit more work. You don't sit around so much. And then you have to tell them, I'm interested in being a stand-in. Here's my height, my weight, and sizes because you often get it because you match the wardrobe. Right. So I think I'm guessing now <laughs> you, the, a good way to kind of approach this up. Uh, first, you have to be a SAG member. But um, you, the best idea is to kind of try to find actors that you look like or and cultivate that look as much right. as possible. <laughs> um, you'd not only do that, but if you do follow uh, the reports about what's shooting, you look up who would be doing the casting, especially the background. Again, they handle the stand-in. And if you know you are a match for that actor, then you reach out to that casting office or the production office and say, I'm interested in doing stand-in work. I believe I fit for this actor. Think of me. Right. Uh, I've worked with Paul Rudd. I've worked with John Pankow for films. Wow. Um, you know, it's work. Uh, you don't get residuals as if you had a part. Uh, but it's better, in my opinion, it's better than doing extra work. You can learn a lot. And if you work frequently, you can make good money. And there are times where you get close enough with the star. If they like you and you get along and you're good, sometimes they will put you in their contract. Wow. And that, that would be cool. You also get paid more money. Yeah. Uh, that almost happened with Matthew Broderick. We did uh, family business first. And we got along great. Matthew, again, he's a good guy. He went off and did a film down south. When he came back to New York, his next he lives in New York. His next film was called The Freshman. And the production office tracked me down because I had a work, knew I worked with him. And I got the job. And on the first day, he was so happy to have me because he told me on the other film he did that the stand-in was not only not a good stand-in, but kind of strange. <laughs> and Matthew right away wanted to know if I could go up to film in Canada because we did three weeks in New York, nine weeks in Canada. Uh, I did not go to make it quick, but I had by the time they were ready to finish New York, the cinematographer, a lot of people wanted me to go, but they couldn't get the work permits in time. And that's when Matthew said he wanted to try to get me in his contract. Didn't happen, which is fine. I didn't go in this business to be a stand-in all my life. Right. Uh, and Matthew's been great. We, we sum up, keep in touch. I'm not going to say we're friends. Right. But uh, I, uh, one of the things I do here in New York, I run the oldest theatrical organization in the country. Is that Lambs? Is that what? A- it's called the Lambs. It formed in New York in 1874. And uh, about five years ago, Matthew did a luncheon with us, helping us raise some money to buy some project for our, our foundation. Uh, what is that, Lamb? Just talk briefly about that for people who. It is, a, it is primarily a social club for people, professionals in the entertainment and the arts. 
uh, but things come out of those social connections. For example, it was members of the Lambs who founded the Actors Fund of America. Their current president is a member of the Lambs. It was Lambs who founded ASCAP. It was Lambs who founded United Artists, Paramount Pictures. Lambs were founding members of SAG, of, of AFTRA. Three of us were involved in the merger of SAG-AFTRA. Lerner and Lowe met at the Lambs Club, and as a result, Frederick Lowe left the Lambs a piece of Brigadoon, which fuels our foundation. And our foundation, which is a separate organization, supports grants to education and the arts and nonprofit theater. Wow, very cool stuff. Uh, that you know, the, just that little piece of trivia, Lerner and Lowe met there. <laughs> that's 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 a huge, uh, fascinating little piece of trivia. So now I went in reading your bio. And this happens every time I have somebody who's in film on. on uh, they are now a jack of all trades. They're a filmmaker, writer, a singer, actor, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, is that out of necessity? Uh, and because generally you kind of think somebody's got a passion for acting. That's what, you know, you get a tunnel vision. And, I, and that's what my view of most actors that I've known. But now the more I am exposed to people who are in the business, I'm realizing that everybody, first of all, everybody wants to be a director at some point. <laughs> uh, and then uh, everybody's got their hands in so many different areas. Is that where it started for you? Did you always say, I want to be a very diverse kind of artist and get involved in all these different things? Or did you just well, want to be an actor? I think it's hard for anybody who's creative to say, I, I only want to do this. You always have other ideas. Uh, I began a musical theater, so singing, acting. My mentor was Gene Kelly's brother, Fred, who was also director. And Fred encouraged me to also think about directing. So in college, my focus was in performance and directing. And, uh, and that was my path for a while. And the stand-in work was kind of that hybrid where you're an actor, but you're working with the director, not on camera. Uh, and uh, I think what's happening, though, today there's more of a need for you to be able to do something more than one. If you are able to carve out a career solely as an actor or a singer, hey, that's great. Right. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of focus. But sometimes you have to piece together a career and you make money from different areas and then suddenly one area may open up more for you than others. Uh, for example, the way I got into writing or screenwriting um, I'm a bit of a geek. I was in the Navy I w and where I learned a little about computers. And I had my first computer back in 1982. <laughs> yeah. And when actors heard that I had a computer, because most people didn't, next thing I know, everybody was asking me, would you put my screenplay onto your computer so I can edit it down the road or their play? And as I worked on those, I would say, hey, I think you know, I would do the work, and then I said, but I think you got a problem. On page 72, you have a character giving dialogue that you killed on page 33. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because of screenwriting is a lot about details. And then I started learning about screenwriting. Uh, and and where, where it led me today is where I'm still an actor, and I do voiceover work. Um, uh, it, it's also opened up that I'm look, I've written and uh, I'm looking to direct and produce. Uh, I'm not doing it alone, uh, so, but we have two projects up and going, and, and if everything I have done over the years didn't happen, I wouldn't be able to try where I am now. 
Gotcha. So is Megaballs the first feature movie script that you've written, complete feature movie script that you've written? No. Um, I have a, a writing part. I have several writing partners. Um, my business partner, Joe Cirillo, and I have written films together. I have rewritten films that he wrote. He inputs on films I write. I also have two playwrights that I've worked with. Uh, one was at the Lambs. I directed four of his projects at the Lambs. One of it made it to the York Theater. And one of his plays I turned into a screenplay. Um, Mega Balls was my first solo script. Um, and it was kind of scary, and yet it was freeing because I had to do what I wanted and not always work with what a partner. Uh, for those who, you, I see you've got the website up. Thank you. Right, yeah. uh, Mega Balls is a comedy about computer geeks, the lottery, and the mob. <laughs> Uh, That's I, my life story, by the way, but continue. <laughs> which one? The lottery of a mob? <laughs> uh, both, actually. Uh, but, uh, we, you know, I can elaborate on that. But uh, we're here to hear your story. <laughs> that, that, uh, that started as a short film, and I hadn't written it. I just made notes, and I was down in Florida taking care of my mother in her last year, uh, trying not to get depressed, and I certainly work on the short film. And in a week, I had 80 pages. And... To cut to the quick now, it is a feature-length film. Uh, we've, we've picked up 27 festival recognitions, uh, first prize, second prize, top five, and a lot of comedy uh, things. And uh, we have a good team together that hold a lot of awards, major awards, everything but an Oscar. And, and we're hoping to produce it. We've been working on the financing. Uh, unfortunately, because of uh, the pandemic, it's on hold. Right. Everything's uh, on hold, right? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, well, there are things that are shooting, but it's it's a money issue because of the requirements to safely shoot, the requirements of both all the all the craft unions, SAG, everything. Uh, it's going to cost more money because we need more days to film, we need more supplies, we have more cast. So my budget's going to jump from three million to five million or thereabouts. That's still very low by by uh, comparison to most uh, major films, though, isn't it? Oh yeah, but but you know, it, it it's not easy to raise five million. Yeah, I get that, but yeah. it, it it strikes me is because you hear we hear about movies that are two hundred million dollars, and obviously uh, this movie wouldn't require that, being not like a you know major fantasy thriller, you know whatever it is well, with big special effects we, and all. We like that. Um, we actually started off with a budget of a million. Wow! And in the development, we had uh, we had to shift lawyers at the last minute. He convinced us to raise the budget because you need what's called a completion bond to protect the financing. That brought us up to almost two million. We went to Toronto Film Festival. A lot of people loved the concept, but we didn't get anywhere. Then we went to Sundance and we won first uh, tied first prize in a pitch contest. Where afterward, a distributor told us we have to raise the budget. Because in a comedy, you need to have actors the audience will recognize. Right. Making it easy for them to sell it. Uh, and they also said for most indies, the sweet spot is under a million or three to five. So that's what brought us to three. I could shoot it for a lot less, but I wouldn't have the name actors that help me sell it. Right. Even at that, it's got to be a little diff difficult to get like big name actors, well, right? You'd be surprised. Um, once you're financing in some place... It all changes because there are actors that will say, I'll take a look at it. I have no work right now or whenever you're planning to shoot. And also there's some actors that say, hey, nobody ever asked me to do a comedy. I'll look at it. Right. Um, 
the hard thing is trying to get actors on board pre-financing to make the financing easier, but that's difficult. Uh, I'm in the business. My, bu my business partner's been much older. He's been around for a long time. We almost got Danny Aiello to read the script. And then we did a reading of it. Danny was going to come. He didn't make it. He apologized, and then he died. <laughs> he had a Vagoda. A He's got a lot of nerve. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, <laughs> we do have um, right now commitments from Lynn Tucci, who was a, a frequent regular on Orange is the New Black. And then we got Vinny Pastor, best known as Big Pussy on The Sopranos. Right, cool. I've known for Vinny a lot of years, but Vinny doesn't raise money. He's just right for the role. Uh, so that's the hard part is, you know, it's which comes first, the money of the actors. Right. Uh, one of the actors I would love to approach, and I can't till I have the money, and the start date would be Matthew Broderick. Wow. He's very right for the lead role. He has done a lot of films in the one to $2 million range. And uh, it would give an interesting backstory about how I worked with him as a stand-in. He was the one who encouraged me to write years ago, and now he'd be in my film. Wow, that would be awesome. Yeah, great, great. And that would be great for the marketing of the film as well. If it, and, and to be clear, Matthew is not involved in the film. Right, right, right. Uh, my, my lawyer made that mistake once. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I get to about half of the financing, then would we reach out to Matthew's people because a lot of it depends on the schedule. You know, uh, I'm fascinated by or learned something here new today because I and I think a lot of people in my position, people who are just uh, fans of the of the art of filmmaking and know a lot of people and talk to a lot of people in the art of filmmaking, are would be surprised to learn what I learned today from you just now is that you don't need a finished film to go to these festivals. You can go there with a uh, screenplay or a script and kind of uh, pick that uh, most people don't know about it. I'm not aware of it. I know a lot of young filmmakers out there who think they have to they have to have a film before they get involved with trying to uh, do anything with their script in festivals and stuff. So, uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and how it works? Well, first of all, it's all about networking. Um, so, you know, if everybody's trying to make a little movie, looks around, they may have festivals in their neighborhoods. You know, in in the New York, New Jersey area, there must be 40 film festivals. And, and you go to the ones when you can afford it and you try to go to the panel events because you'll get a lot of good discussion that'll help you learn more about, not just about filmmaking, but the business side of it as it stands today. And then you try to meet people. Uh, if, if you, we went with what's called a one sheet, which on the one side has a kind of, a looks like a poster for the film that our production designer did for us. And it has all the laurels on it from all the festivals. A lot of festivals you can you can earn you can you can uh, <laughs> submit scripts online to film festivals for screenplays. Wow! Uh, and then on the back side of the one sheet, you have your information, you have your budget, you have the names of the key people involved, you have your uh, what we call a tagline, a logline. Uh, uh, you know some of the very basic uh, uh, investor information, and 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 then you hand that out and try to get conversations and try to collect emails and follow it up, and minimally you're you'll build a little bit of a following. You, you know it's it's finding money's the hardest thing. Right. Um, you know if you know people with money, there are things you can do. I, I do recommend anyone looking to put a film together is you've got to have the proper legal work in place, which is something so many people forget about. 
You need to protect your own assets that nobody can sue you. You need to have proper documents, which should be set up by a lawyer that will protect both you and an investor, which clearly states what the investor gets, what your responsibilities are, what their participation is. There are different types of legal work depending on your budget. Uh, we chose one called, uh, that allows us to publicly solicit for investors because legally, at least in the United States, you can't go on Facebook and say, hey, invest in my film, unless you have the proper legal work in place. Oh, I know lots of people who've done that without the proper legal work of it. And what you say about the legal stuff is true no matter what business you're in. And I get that advice from, from lawyers I've had on the program all, all the time. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, you have to really be set up correctly uh, with all your legal ducks in a row if you're going to get into any business. But what I want to ask you now is hearing all that uh, from the artistic uh, standpoint, that sounds like something a lot of artists just it's a, it's a soul killing uh, or endeavor to get into. Does it dim your artistic fire or uh, at all to have to deal with all that crap? No, no. <laughs> I, I wish that we had another producer on our team who's been through this all and will take care of that, that I can focus purely creatively. However, I've learned as I've gone along because I just have a good balanced left mind, right mind, uh, and and trying and learning that side of it is there to position me so we can get to the creative side of making the film. Right. Uh, it also has helped me in in terms of thinking of my script, thinking in terms of my budget. Uh, one mistake I see a lot of a lot of writers do is they write one or two line parts for all their friends. Right. Well, they forget every time they do that how much it costs them in the long run. And if you're dealing with a union project, now you're giving away residuals to all those one line two. You know, right. so you can't write that way just to be purely creative. You need to think about the financial side. Any right. successful director, screenwriter understands that. They may not be experts and they don't need to be, but they just understand that side of the business. Right. Uh, it, it sounds to me, uh, well, kudos for you for having that balance because I know a lot of people who don't, just simply don't. The artist, artist people and artistically inclined people generally are not good business people and don't have any patience or, or aptitude for it in any way. Uh, uh, but when you talk about investing, I, I had Bill Fickner on uh, early on it, when I started the podcast, and we talked about uh, the responsibility when you when you have investors in your film to make the best film you possibly can. But the, the responsibility you want to pay your investors back you, that you know that's part of uh, the responsibility that falls on you when you start you take on this project. So there's uh, and we talked about the. If, if you go in with a low budget, you, you might be forced to cut corners in places and then not make the very, very best film that you have. So, uh, and you talked about you've, you've been asked to kind of bump your budget up. If, uh, and I'm wondering, where do you kind of make that? Is that a hard uh, line to kind of find where you, you can have the best film that you can possibly make and you know you can make it as, as good as it can be with this much money, but then you want to make sure that you can also pay that money back. Is that a difficult well, line? First of all, creating the budget, you want to have a good line producer who understands what it costs to make a film. 
Uh, we're fortunate we have a good line producer who's been in the business for like 30 years. Um, and we went to him first on, on Megaballs. Again, I've got two projects in the works. But with Megaballs, we said, how low can we possibly make this? Can we do this for a half million? And he came back and he said, yes, but I think if you're going to do this right, you need to go higher. That's how we got to the starting point of 900 million, uh, 900,000. <laughs> but, then, but then it gets to the point, you know, uh, one of the best advices I heard was about when you know what your story is about, to try to do some research to see what kind of market there is for that type of film. And then you back yourself into the budget. Because, yeah, anybody can make a movie for $100 million, but will it make money? Right. So you want to find that, that point where you're, you, you've got your budget to the lowest level you can get it where you can still make a good film and then hopefully at the level where it's gonna, your market will be larger to get a return. Right. Because you also realize when you put out your film, when it's finished and out in the world, you know, there's a lot of people who get a piece of the money before you get it to give back to the investors. Right. Uh, we call it the waterfall. And generally the rule of thumb is, is three to one. So for every dollar you spend, you have to gross $3 to break even. So you, the, when you know that, then you go, all right, my $3 million budget is potentially a $9 million break-even point on gross sales. Gotcha. And then you have, and, and, and when you're dealing with investors, you have to be forthright about how you're going to spend the money, how you're going to pay it back, and you got to explain to them up front all the risks that they could lose all their money. You have to spell, and that's what the agreement's all about. So an investor knows upfront exactly what you're going for. They call they also refer to the blue sky that people promise their investors. Oh, for every dollar you make, you're going to get a thousand dollars back. Right. No, you could get sued for that. So you have. So that's why you need the guidance of a, of a line producer to come up with a realistic, make doable budget, as uh, at a level that you think the market will bear, that you can raise, that will give you the creative side. And then you got to have the legal work so you can protect your investors and protect yourself ultimately. It sounds to me like you have uh, an incredible value that you could offer young filmmakers, young independent filmmakers as a consultant for all this kind of stuff. Because I, I, when you're talking, I'm hearing every mistake that I, uh, friends of mine have made, young filmmakers, independent filmmakers. Uh, and you, 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 met, you started that uh, answer by talking about uh, you start by... Uh, seeing what kind of market there is for the movie that you want to make and and, and so i uh, i have a lot of friends who want to make films on long island and new, in new york and independent filmmakers and they always start off with this idea of a mob movie and i always say it's you know the godfather's been done goodfellas has been done if you're going to make a mob movie one like you're doing it make it a comedy or something like that because there's there's a market for that if you're going to make another if you're going to attempt to do the godfather again good luck because it better be the it better be is quality of that because there's not a lot of market for just another just another mob film but there's also it gets go we're going back now to the story itself which is another mistake because i i've been learning a lot about screenplays i've now worked I have worked with numerous people, helping them format their screenplay properly, do grammar, do all that, and then try to help them with their story. And I'll give you an example. There's a guy that uh, he's, he's a retired New York City sheriff who wrote a cop story. 
and give me 190 pages <laughs> without punctuation, <laughs> oh my without God. any punctuation. <laughs> and, and we worked together for a while to first focus the story down to a reasonable length and give it a beginning, a middle, and end. But then what he was lacking that he learned was your cop story, your mob story, whatever. It's not a mob story, or let's say with a cop story. It's not a cop story. It's a story about that cop. Right. It has to be about how the actions and the events in the story are affecting the lead character. Right. Then, as Sidney Lumet told me, the best stories are at the end where there's a moment of self-revelation, where after the character has gone through everything and overcome their their obstacles what have they learned about themselves right and if you can think of that then you your story will already stand out yeah lamette is a great teacher that book that you mentioned before making movies i read that in 1997 i think uh, and uh, what a eye opener for anybody who's uh, interested in in making films i mean that's a a great book and I, I don't think you find a better teacher uh, no. on the subject than that um, w when you look at the environment of what's happened because of COVID and, and the way it's going to change the theater and somebody told me the other day theaters don't care about the move uh, you know selling tickets they care about selling concession stuff and that kind of blew my mind like they, they see, uh, still have to bring people in right but uh, okay, movie theater is a live theater a lot, uh, movie theaters like yeah he's th they said you know if you, you they don't care about admi admission fees so much as they make their money on the concessions exactly. so um but the does that does the way the theaters are, are now closed in new york and closed most places uh does that affect the way you're kind of looking at the long term of how you're going to make movies and how you're going to distribute them or does that come into your thinking or you just want to you want to make the film first and then worry about how well, where you're going to distribute later i think first you have to figure out you know what is your story of your script what you know that's your focus because that's everything and then you got to figure out what your market is and then you can figure out where or how i distribute it uh horror films slasher films uh, zombie films those have a huge market that eat it up and spit them out so those are films that can be made cheaply because the genre sells it and can be distributed cheaply because they go out and that's it when you're getting into comedy drama uh, biopics they're different animals in different markets uh, I do think because of COVID, we've accelerated a change in how we watch movies, which changes how we distribute them. We have been in the last couple of years moving from the theaters into the home theater. Right. And now as the equipment becomes cheaper at home to have a massive TV, people are saying, I really don't want to go out and spend $15 a head to go watch a movie and another $25 on popcorn and a soda. Right. <laughs> when I could rent one online for $20 and have six people watch it over dinner. And you can make the popcorn that you would be paying $25 for for $1.50 at home. <laughs> I think uh, my personal feeling is in whenever we come out of this, whether, however we do, I think the two movies that are going to be playing in movie houses will be the giant Hollywood productions, you know, the special effects, those type of films and the really small artsy independent film because those are usually in little independent theaters right like everything else is going to be pretty much happening online 
which brings us back to the budget discussion. Right. Again, if you can raise the right budget to make a good quality film with the right cast, but keep it low enough, your chances of earning a profit online are much better. Right. Well, uh, Oh, go ahead. No. no. The other project I'm working on, which has happened over the summer, based on a lot of networking events I was doing, um, it was based on a play I directed at the Lambs. It's a romantic comedy. Uh, and uh, to cut to the quick, I am now working with a producer in Vienna, Austria, to shoot it there with me as the director. Because um, he can do it cheaper there. Uh, he's convinced that two to three million euro is all he needs to have some real good name actors. Uh, and he can pull it together because other countries also put up tax money. He can raise almost half the money from the government. Wow. Um, and so I've been focusing on that. And, and we've been talking about where are we going to distribute this? And his answer is most of it will be done in Europe streaming. Wow. Interesting. Uh, uh, so, uh, so you, you again, you have to figure out your story, figure out your market, and then in between when those come together, there's your sweet spot for what you need to budget, how you're going to distribute it. Um, I there's a film, and I know this has nothing to do with you, and you probably can't, it won't, don't have much to comment on it, but it's it's baffled me. A uh, film that's been advertised, Kevin Costner and Diane, Diane Lane, out this Friday, and it keeps saying in theaters Friday, in theaters Friday is all over the, and I'm wondering what what theaters do you, do you have any insight? Drive-in theaters. Oh, okay. Like so drive-ins are all opened up. Some are even being built. Um, I have a producer friend in L.A. that had been um, uh, involved in a very low-budget film that was shot all on cell phones. But it worked because it was kind of like, you know, a, a YouTuber experiencing firsthand something he went through. It's a horror type of story. And because he got it done at the right time, he actually got a distribu distribution deal in drive-in theaters. And for three weeks, his little film was coming out in the country as the number one box office because 10 drive-in theaters ran the movie. <laughs> well, drive-in theaters in some large theaters outside of, you know, in, in the Midwest and small towns, they are allowing a certain number of people in. Right. You know, well, I know some people, and I'm probably one of them, who if I had a film that said number one box office, it, 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 I don't care if it, it, nobody else was, it, nobody has to know that there were no other films out at the time. I was the only, I was number one because I was the only one. <laughs> but, but when you think about that, so uh, he would have gotten reviews about the quality of the story, which I have not read. Uh, but just think from the marking point, because of that little freak that happened and his timing was right, he got that. Now his online marketing for streaming is, hey, it was number one box office. Right. You know, yeah. look at the film over other films because, you know, one of the, the good things about the, the modern world of filmmaking is that anybody can make a film. Mm. But one of the bad things about the modern day of, is that anybody can make a right. film. Same and, with music, same, same with music and, and all that stuff. And I, that's a, a really, and it probably, I'll get your take on this, it probably affects um, the way people view the art form. In other words, most of the older people I know think, and this happens generationally, so uh, the music today just sucks. The music today just sucks. And my point is, no, there's great music out there. It's just harder to find it because there's so much of it. Uh, well, I the, call it white noise. 
<laughs> you know, it's it's there's a lot of this level of white noise out there. You know, all these people who are earnestly trying to make whatever their film, and I'm not going to judge that. But how do you get the attention of an audience? How do you get the attention of a distributor or the finance or whoever? When there's all this out there, you've got to find a way to bring yours above that level. And right. how do you do that? It's it's thinking ahead marketing wise. For example, on Mega Balls, our strategy for entering these film fests, these online festivals for the screenplay was merely to go to an investor and say, look, it's a good screenplay because a lot of investors don't read the screenplay. Right. So it became a marketing angle for the film fest, you know, for the investor. Uh, and then your casting is another thing that's going to bring you out. You know, the, the higher you can cast, the better chance you have of somebody looking at that film. Right. I've had uh, successful filmmakers on. I ask them about that part of it. Or, and how important is it to have a star in your movie? And most of them will say, if you got a great story, it's not that important. But I can't name a single movie that I know of that I can say, well, well it was a great film and it, it, it was a major success that didn't have at least one name well, recognizable star in it. Yeah, first of all, it depends again on the genre. You know, the, the horror film, the slasher film, you know, that the zombie film, that genre, while there are some breakout actors that sell those, but the genre sells it itself. Right. When you're looking at a comma, a drama, a police story, a mob story, all those things, now you've got to get actors on board that will attract an audience. Maybe like, you know, like half of the cast of The Sopranos have been making nothing but mob movies because they're bringing in that audience. Um, there are actors out there that are a lot cheaper than you think, and there are actors that every actor wants to work, right. you know, and you know, and you got to be realistic. Um, we have a casting director attached to Megaballs. Um, uh, the other film in Vienna is called Hot Properties, and uh, we've also uh, locked in certain tax incentives that will help an investor actually save money, you know, lower the risk. But our casting director read the script and she goes, "You got to get this to Robert De Niro." It's like, I can't afford Robert De Niro. <laughs> His salary is more than my budget. And she goes, oh, you never. And I go, it's like, uh, you, know, you know, so you have to be realistic about what actor. You also have to, that's where, again, you go back to the producing mindset. Right. You know, every actor you bring on board, if you've got to travel them, now you've got to add hotel per diem onto your, your airfare, onto your budget. And that can be often more than their salaries. Yeah. So you've got to think in terms of that. Uh, you have to, uh, you try to reach out and get to know some of the film distributors or the sales reps that may guide you into a better choice of actor who you may not realize might have more value. My challenge with the Vienna Project is in, we are really making an Austrian film that will appeal to an American market. Wow, that's tough, we're not, right? We're not making an American film that's going to shoot in Austria. There's a difference. Right. And in the casting of the two leads, it's I, I keep asking the producer there to find a casting director there who might we're making up a wish list of all the people that we could see just right for the role, regard, regardless of their dollar amount, because some actor that we may in America think is worth something maybe have less value than somebody in Europe. Right. So. So, again, that's you. you it's hard today if you're going to be your creative side of it to make your movie. Yeah, you have to learn your craft to tell the story, but then you have to think about how they're going to tell that, sell that story, and then it, it comes to a point where it all it, it comes together. 
Right. You seem like a regular guy uh, who's not been affected by uh, what we think of, you know, the Hollywood snobbery type stuff. Yeah. That's because I'm poor and I'm hungry. <laughs> okay. But, no, honestly, you know, I've 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 had the the privilege to work over the years with some tremendous people. I, I've mentioned Dustin Hoffman, Matthew Broderick, Sidney Lumet, Sean Connery, Sean Penn, uh, Woody Allen. Woody Allen. Wow. The list goes on and on. And I will tell you, and also through my work at the Lambs, I will tell you that about ninety-five percent of the people that I've worked with are all down to earth decent people wow you don't last in this business if you're not yeah okay uh <laughs> what about what about this idea uh what you have some more to add to that no no i mean oh, okay. you know there's publicity stories i'll give you one for example we've all heard for years that dustin hoffman is very difficult to work with right i was on the set seven weeks with him i saw one hour where he was not anything less than nice Right, but the film uh, Get Shorty was supposedly about him, and uh, Danny DeVito kind of played him as a total, uh, you know, control freak. Like, uh, I'm going to order for you. We're going to have lunch. I'm going to order for you. I'm going <laughs> to tell you what to eat and that kind of stuff. I, 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 from from the first day of filming to the last, I couldn't have had more fun with Dustin Hoffman. You know. Uh, Tommy Lister, who was a, a former wrestler who was in the movie Friday, played Debo, and he 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 worked with Dustin Hoffman. He told me a, a really touching story. About Tommy Lister was a wrestler, a guy who was didn't have a, a significant part in the film, whatever film he was in with Dustin Hoffman, and they were do, shooting some. Um, uh, red carpet stuff at the Academy Awards, and Dustin Hoffman would not allow them to start shooting until they included Tommy, which I thought was wow. You know that that's a a gesture you don't hear about stories like that. About I'll give you a couple. I mean, there were many times when we were working long days where all of a sudden one of Dustin's assistants would show up with two hundred hamburgers for the set. Um, and my favorite one story: I I was living in in out Long Island, uh, and my mother was still living in the house. And I'm out doing yard work, and she yells out the window that Dustin Hoffman's office just called and wants my home address because I was using a P.O. box. So I said, fine. I had no idea. We shot over, over the holidays. We started in November. We shot through Thanksgiving into Christmas. The day before Thanksgiving, I get a 22-pound turkey delivered to my house with a note that simply says, eat the bird, Dustin, Matthew, and Sean. Wow. Very cool stuff. So, you know, I'm, I was just a lowly stand-in, you know, right. you know, and we had a lot of fun. But that, you know, so, you know, I, you know, everybody's got bad days. I'm not going to say he's a he's an angel all the time, but you also have to realize when you're working with major stars, you're dealing with more than a single person. My favorite line, Al Pacino, one time, I was on the set when he said this. It was Sea of Love when we were hung up on some technical delay. And he walks out of his camper and starts screaming, you're holding up a corporation here. Wow. Because if you think about it, Al Pacino, how many people are in his corporation? Right. The lawyers, yeah. the agents, the assistants, the, you know, and it's true. Wow, very good stuff. Uh, today, um, in, in the independent world at least, and I know could because you're trying to get your movie funded, it's why this is a relevant question. A lot of people are going this India go-go route and all that kind of stuff. Do you have any kind of opinion of that kind of attempt to get fund your movie through that way? 
Um, well, I don't. It, depending again on your budget. If you're trying to raise twenty thousand dollars, you might be able to do it. If you're trying to raise a million and more, you're not going to do it. Um, those the success of those those uh, fundraisings has to do with how big are your social media following, how many friends you have that will chip in. What some people fare to do is they when they do these events, they say, all right, if you give me $20, I'll give you a DVD. If you give me $50, I'll give you the T-shirt. Little thing. But then they forget, they forget to factor in the cost of that T-shirt and mailing it. Right. And suddenly that donation is not so big. Right. Um, if you're dealing with a larger budget, what some people do, and it's, it's again, if you can pull it off, is you raise some money that way. Because one thing that's going to interest a real investor, somebody who has an equity position, is how they will get their money or how much profit, how much risk. So let's say you're raising a million dollars to shoot a film and you can come in with a 30% tax incentive, which means when the investor gives you a million, 30% is a write-off. Or here in New York State, uh, on my, my mega balls on my $3 million project, when I'm done, New York State will hand me back about $600,000, which goes back to the investor. So he's getting money back. But when you, when you, if you tack in uh, this type of, uh, of, of group raising, that you can go to the best to say, look, I've already got $50,000. I don't have to pay it back. These are donations. Right. It's, it's raising their equity position. So, you, you, you know, so it can be part of your overall scheme depending on your budget. Well, my experience with that, I have a couple of friends who've, who've actually gotten some decent money through that way. But uh, my experience is that when they have a bigger budget like that, they, some rich people will say, yeah, I, I will finance your film. But they always want something like ridiculous. And I want my daughter to star or have a starring role in it. Uh, and your daughter hasn't acted. Nobody knows who she is. Get a lot of that with the Indiegogo stuff. And it, it, it's a deal breaker in a lot of cases. And I know some people say who have said yes to it and then regretted it and then and, and had to get out of it. It gets messy. But they always want something really... Uh, that you really can't deliver for, for that. <laughs> I, I have not been faced with that yet. <laughs> yeah. I find what is a bigger problem today is just finding the money people. There is no online directory of wealthy people that you can look for money. Right. Uh, you have to understand people of a certain wealth are approached all the time. Right. Uh, and and their, their interest may not always be in making money back. It might be in something else that appeals to them. Gotcha. Like, oh, I get to hang out with Dustin Hoffman. Or who right. Was, yeah. That know? that was part of it too. Somebody, uh, if he could, had a, he wanted to make sure that the major star got cast and that he would be part of uh, some publicity campaign for something else that the guy had going on. Like you know, um, ridiculous demands that you can't possibly meet. And you could say, "I'll try," but you know, you're approaching a star to to now sell his soul for your. <laughs> you as, as a producer that's raising money where you don't have control of that star, you cannot make any promises for that star. Right, right, you yeah. Say you have the star. I mean, I could go around and say, hey, I got Matthew Broderick, which is a total lie, and I won't get killed. <laughs> you know? So I can't say that. I can't even approach Matthew or because I know him at least until I've raised at least half the money. Right. Then maybe he'll read the script. But right. you have to be really careful because, again, these people 
these names we're talking at this level, these are corporations, these are business people, and they can endanger their business by getting involved in something they're going to regret. Right. So you gotcha. can't make promises on the behalf. Uh, right. Every investor I've been in touch with so far, their questions have been totally legit about, can I read the script or what's it about and how am I going to get my money and all this kind of stuff. And then in those conversations, we throw in the perks like, well, you could come on the set and have lunch or we can make you an extra, you know, that kind of thing. You right. come to parties, you come to the opening, you know, but there's only so much you as a producer can control. You can't speak for the other people you haven't even hired yet. Right. And make promises. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, and I thank you for this time today, it's been very insightful. And I'm sure it's been helpful for a lot of people who are, uh, you know, interested in having a career in filmmaking and this is a tough time to get started obviously um but uh, i want to touch on this uh, idea of time sensitivity and i it doesn't seem like your mega balls movie script is subject to necessarily being time sensitive or having a, an ex expiration date on it but does that kind of have a pressure add into like i have to have my movie made by such and such a time or i'm gonna have to just give well, up on it I mean, you're concerned that while you're trying to get it, that somebody else comes out with a similar movie, or that suddenly a certain genre is no longer popular, that it's on the you know on the wrong side of that. Uh, and in our case, it's like we cannot shoot over the winter because it would raise our budget even more. So it would need to shoot in mid-spring into as late as Thanksgiving. So I have to figure that. Uh, also, some tax incentives do change or expire. Oh yeah. For example, when we started the project and created legal papers, the New York State incentive was 30%. It's now the 25%. So my investors, are look, if I get them, are suddenly looking a little drop in their guaranteed return. Uh, you know, so th those are things, you know, there's other things. Uh, and, and who knows, you know, you get somebody interested and they die on you. And say, you right. Know, wow. So you to get things done as timely as you can. Right. That, you mentioned that happened with Danny Aiello and... <laughs> And then on the other hand, you know, it's it's uh, uh, things change so quickly. So you want to get it done when you can. But on the you know, it took it took Dustin Hoffman seven years to get Tootsie made. It took Leo DiCaprio like twenty years to get Aviator made. I mean, so there are plenty of stories. Even look recently with uh, uh, Scorsese, how long it took him to get uh, you know the Irishman made. The Irishman, yeah, uh, and that was a whole other discussion that I we we don't have time for today. But I I wanted to ask you about like like how because I know and it, this is just the kind of what I wanted to ask you about if we had time. <laughs> then, I'm in a hurry, so carry on as long as you want. Oh, cool. Let's, so let's go here. Uh, uh, no, uh, but De Niro came out and made himself uh, unpopular with half of America with his political views. And then everybody was like, I'm going to boycott his movies. I'm going to boycott his movies. Then the Irishman comes out and everybody goes to see it. Uh, the, 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 the actors necessarily have to worry. Uh, should they, well, somebody like that, he shouldn't be concerned about what people think about his politics. And I, I know there's a, a group of people that think, you know, Hollywood people have no opinion trying to influence uh, voting in any way, and I, I could see that. But there are people, people like, yeah, <laughs> there are people like you and me. They're bound to have an opinion one way or another, and and we can't really censor them on that. But the yeah. idea, do they should they worry about how this is going to affect my career? I think you're, because everything affects your career, it should be part of it. I don't think you should censor. You have to do what you believe in. 
Um, I think what's important is that when you're on the set, that you're, you're, those things don't interfere with the filmmaking itself. Uh, uh, because, uh, you know, if, if, if you're difficult to work with because of an issue, right. um, I think what is more, more, more problematic today over the political thought is uh, the Me Too movement. There are some actors out there who really have done things or been accused of done things where people now don't want to touch them. Either they don't want to work with them or they don't want to distribute them. Right. And so, you know, so everything you do in your personal life affects your business. But, you know, you, you, we're, all, we're all human beings and, and actors are more emotional. You know, it's very hard to just say, I'm not going to tell people what I think. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a fine line. You only, it's a, everyone's going to have a, their own, you know, how far they're willing to take. It's up to them. Right. So uh, any final, you know, thoughts for people, young people, because there's a, a, my, a big chunk of my audience is 18 to 35 year olds, people who and young artistic people, creative people who are uh, have dreams. I know it's different from when you got started because there was no covid, no pandemic that no really paradigm changing event that changed the way we do everything in the world. But any overall like advice, helpful insight and advice uh, at closing advice that you can well, give. I think first on the creative side, you, you should be watching a lot of movies and, and look at different genres. I mean, right now while you're home, hell, you know, get on Netflix and watch everything, even things you might not normally watch and try to understand why certain films work and certain don't. Um, try to read scripts. There are online services now where a lot of films that have been released, you can watch their, read their scripts and, and learn the craft learn how to tell the story uh, because that's where it all centers on. If the story is no good, nothing else really happens. When you, DC, <clears throat> when you do see some horrible films getting made, it's usually because they had the money. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, get an idea of creativity, get an idea of how to structure a movie, come up with a story that hasn't been told forever. You know, that's the first step. And then you've got to tune into the business and it's difficult because it changes constantly. Uh, when I started uh, my efforts as a producer with my business partner, I mean, we've had to gear up numerous times starting all over because business is changing so quickly. So you have to follow that so that you're somewhat current. Like, what's the distribution model now and how does it affect what you're going to make? You know, everybody wants to have their story, wants to make their film, and that's absolutely great. But you have to think on the other side of your brain, how do I get people to see this movie and how do I recoup the cost? Because your real goal is we want to make a living in this business. Right. I don't have to make a killing. I want to make a living. I think that's a bit the big problem that I see is that most people most people I talk to are have unreal expectations about what they want to do and they think they want to make a killing. They think they're going to be, uh, as I mentioned earlier, kind of sarcastically, but it's true. Everybody wants to be a director and they don't they want to direct the big blockbuster. They they want to be the big name director and sometimes that you know what I'd settle for a, a guy who could just carve out a good comfortable living doing what I love and call that a success. <laughs> that, that to me as an actor, I'm, I'm also on the board of SAG after for 13 years, 14 years. And, and that is the goal of every actor that I know your goal, your achievable goal is to be able to make a living doing this business, whether you're actor, writer, singer, you know, you want to make a living doing that. Hopefully right. not one where you have to struggle week to week. Right. And that's yeah. all you can really try to do. 
Uh, yep. every, everything you do is a business decision. Every role you take is a business decision about how do I support my business so I have income next month and the month after it. You cannot go have a goal to be a star. You cannot have a goal to get a studio picture. You know, it happens, but that can't be a goal because you have no control over that. You do have a control of creating your business, whether your product is you're an actor, director, screenwriter, and whatever your focus is, learn, work on your craft, keep refining it. So when you finally get an opportunity, you're ready. And then maybe you can, then you get a next opportunity, the next opportunity. Wow. You know, actors I know, I'll, I'll go back to Vincent Pastore. He's been around for over 35 years. Right. And, and he's just thankful that he has made a living and he's made a pension as an actor. Yeah, I, I, I could relate to that 100%. And I think once you get older, that becomes apparent. But, it's, you know, when you're young, it's easy to get, you know, visions of grandeur and think uh, I'm special. And somebody, I had Tom McFadden on the other night, who's a career actor now, an acting coach. But he said, everybody who comes to Hollywood is special. <laughs> you know, it's part of it. I appreciate your time and insight today. I'm sure we have a lot of young filmmakers who, who uh who can will find some great go pits of gold in what you said and and some great insight and some who just may struggle to get the message and get it 10 years from now or 15 years but uh ho hopefully we planted some seeds here so today so i thank you for your time and wish you much success uh and uh please keep in touch and come back anytime and and thank you it was fun chatting thank you bye for now bye-bye this episode is brought to you by put me in the story Put Me in the Story creates personalized books for kids by taking best-selling children's picture books and well-loved characters and allowing you to create personalized books that make your child the star of the story alongside their favorite characters. Save 25% store-wide when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code SAVE25. We're also sponsored by Lovely. Lovely is your online stop for modern, irresistible, and affordable women's clothing. Never before has dressing yourself been so easy. Lovely's carefully curated selection of apparel, accessories, and outerwear are always on trend and always available at the web's best prices. Lovely is dedicated to delivering high-quality clothing to women that will make them look and feel their best. They believe every woman has the right to dress well and shouldn't have to spend a lot to love how she looks. They make it easy to wear outfits you love every day, giving you the confidence to take on the world. Lovely.com summer fashion trends are now 40% off, starting at just $5.99. Get an extra 18% off when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code JFT18. We're also sponsored by VaporDNA. Founded in 2013, VaporDNA is the premier online vape store offering an industry-leading selection of electronic cigarettes, e-liquids, and accessories. Their friendly and knowledgeable customer service team is always ready to provide the best customer service experience to ensure you find what you're looking for. They guarantee their products to be 100% genuine and at the lowest possible price. They're so confident in their selection and customer service, they offer their customers a 45-day refund policy. 
Save 20% when you click the link on MindDogTV.com and use the code OrionQ. Mark Barrett, folks. Uh, you know what? There's a lot to take away from there, but my biggest takeaway comes from his final message. Every decision you make is a, bi- a business decision. That's absolutely true. Uh, so approach your career that way. Hope you got something out of this. Hope you, you like it and come on back. Tell your friends about it. Subscribe. Go to my YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Go to MindDogTV.com and get on my mailing list. And uh, questions and comments for me, info at MindDogTV.com, info at MindDogTV.com. Till tonight, when my guest will be Wayne McFarlane at 8 p.m., uh, I'm Matt Napple for the MindDog TV podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great rest of your day, and bye for now. Saying that the Across the room